I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Melissa Parrish. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. Today, we're joined by senior analyst AJ Joplin to discuss effective user research in a CX context. Welcome, AJ. Thank you. So maybe this is an obvious place to start, but this topic is kind of baffling to me. Why are we talking about effective user research in a CX context? Like, why isn't this a given? Isn't this a given as when you're building customer experiences or trying to optimize customer experiences? Maybe we could start there. I think that's an interesting question because (laughs) it does seem really obvious, but it's not, alas. And I think a lot of that has to do with specialists that are working inside of a company that have a specific thing that they do, like engineering, right? Or data analysis. And we don't really think about how all of that comes together to meet the needs of a customer. And so that's why (laughs) we're talking about it. So I uh, was in digital product management many years ago before I came to Forrester. And my bosses, one of of my jobs, my boss's version of user research, um, you guys are going to cringe. This is just terrible. We were down in... um, uh, Silicon Alley in New York City. And every time we had a new prototype ready or some kind of design, he would say, come on, we got to go get coffee. And we would take our laptops to Starbucks and interrupt people who were doing other things and say, will you just click around on this for me? Can I just see, what do you think about this? Does this help you accomplish your goals? And of course they were like, well, my goal is to finish reading this book that you just interrupted me. (laughs) So that never went well. Uh, I use all of this as a preface to ask you, how the heck do we do this correctly? What does real UX research look like? Well, I think his heart was in the right place because one form of research is user intercepts. But, you know, it's not always the right thing, the right method for the problem you're trying to solve or the thing you're trying to figure out. Right. When we're thinking about what kind of research that we should be doing, it does just start with that. It starts with what problem are we trying to solve? What do we need to know? Because just saying here, try this (laughs) is not going to get you the data you need. Sometimes coincidentally, it does, but usually not a targeted approach to figuring out the answer to your questions is probably best. So let's talk about sort of state of the state. What's currently happening or or where sort of the, the places or the sources of user research happening today? And then, you know, kind of where or what is best practice? Where do you want to see organizations moving towards and doing this in, in the best way possible? I think it starts with curiosity. I'd like to see a lot more companies being curious about how people use the thing that they make. Um, There's just not enough curiosity, period. And that's where it starts. Um, If you're starting out with a new research practice, you can do grassroots things. You can do intercepts with your targeted user. That's one thing you could do. But it usually takes a passionate few inside of a company to go that direction. What we really need is companies from the leadership level to be curious about how people are using the thing that they make. And when that happens, we start to see funding for research, which usually comes in terms of an actual UX researcher that we might hire that can guide other people internally, because guess what? A lot of other people have day jobs that work in a company. And when we treat research like a pet project, it kind of reaches a plateau where it can't grow. It can't evolve into something that is maybe instrumented across the entire experience, something that happens in the problem space. We are talking about, hey, what is this thing we want to make? And then taking that idea, doing research, and maybe going all the way through to the end of product development. like That requires someone, that requires a professional to help 
aid companies along. So I think there comes a point at which you got to hire someone. You should be thinking seriously about that. And we are in a situation in a time where <laughs> problems are just too complicated to not want that kind of data from your customers. People are learning. They have analogous experiences that they're comparing you to. So there's a lot to understand and taking data seriously in terms of collecting that, that quant and qual data. That's an important thing to try to master. Where does all this input, where does all this research come from in a company? You mentioned hiring somebody. That does sound like a very important first step. Are there, um, are there key departments in most companies where you can, uh, you can expect this data to come from, or maybe even where you can expect this expertise to come from? I think that expertise for you know talking to users comes from design most typically because a lot of times designers are typically trained in these kinds of methods. Some companies do have CX practices where there's a lot of people that are collecting data that's instrumented across the experience, or they're also collecting data through social platforms and things like that. But there's diverse role types for di different kinds of data that you might want to ingest and collect. But for me, it's hiring some design researchers to really understand how to interview the users. That is an important part of the qualitative research that we do. And so what happens if you do hire a researcher or a team? What gets produced or, you know, what are sort of the artifacts that come out of that group that would, I assume, be, be you know, disseminated to product or other um, groups across the organization? Right. They help produce things like journey maps. So getting everybody on the same page to understand what a user is actually experiencing in the course of using your product or service. Service blueprints are a more detailed, deep dive into what's happening for the user and in the back of the house interactions inside of your company that maybe you haven't thought about. Because sometimes we're really bad about creating a lot of spaghetti there and we have to actually figure that out. And that's called service design. But the other kinds of artifacts can be empathy maps, personas. They can help with low fidelity prototypes before you start spending a lot of money on building huge, expensive prototypes. We call those million dollar prototypes. And so they can help you avoid all of that. They can reduce your risk through the things that they create and provide to the teams within a company to keep them aligned and moving in the same direction. Is there an appropriate moment to start user research in the, the development or improvement of a product? Um, I guess what, I, what I'm getting at is a lot of agencies will include um, uh, user research as part of discovery, but actually there are a whole bunch of agencies that don't include as part of discovery. They do user research after they have something to show. In your experience and your research, is there a right moment? Do you need something to show or can you, can you get good stuff out of talking through concepts? Absolutely. Um, concepts are a great way to learn something, right? When we talk about the point in the process in which we do research, it's all the time, in my opinion. It's just is how do you collect data? How do you get feedback? So Forrester has created the design framework and that helps people understand like where they are in the process. Are we at the point where we have something and we have it prototype and we need to show someone? You can absolutely do that. And there are lots of methods that help people do that. And, you know, just drawing storyboards or walking people through a clickable prototype. That's great data. I think that the point is, is that you can always find a place to start collecting data. Do you want to instrument an experience? Do you want to try some A-B testing? 
great, go ahead. If that's where you're at, you can always come back to the point where when you are entering discovery, you can use those methods then, but you have to go with where you are. We don't have the luxury of starting all over in most companies. We've already got something. We're already already doing something, but we still need to learn. I'm struck by the problem that you pointed to, the uh, million-dollar prototype that you had flagged earlier, AJ. I think there's something just to unpack a, a little bit or a reminder, like you had stated, okay, who are you designing this experience for? And starting there, do you really understand the motivations of this particular persona or buyer or user? Is that where you're seeing a lot of tension right now in in speaking with clients like, hey, we tried to do this thing, but now we're not getting funding. And how do they fold user research in to help make the case for, you know, implementing a new experience? Mm, Yeah, there's a there's a lot there. (laughs) Assumptions. We are paid to know what we're doing and how that manifests in our work on the daily. Usually it's like, oh, I have an idea. Let's try it. Let's just keep going. And we're spinning internally. And we never think to go, hey, I wonder if this is even a good idea. Maybe there's some early low fidelity way that we can test with users. There's an exercise that I really love to do with clients and it's called questions and assumptions. (laughs) And it's just the exercise of going through and thinking, what are all the assumptions we're making about the thing that we are hoping to produce? What are all the assumptions we're making about the person that's going to use this? And you can prioritize those. And the ones that are the most risky and you're the ones you're most uncertain about, you can start to dig in and understand how to resolve those. And that is a great way to reduce your risk (laughs) when it comes to making assumptions. But it all comes back to human behavior. I mean, we are the problems in this scenario, right? We think we know the thing. And a lot of times we've had lots of experience that tells us that we actually know what we're talking about. But there's always going to come a moment in which you're wrong and you need to test with outside resources, the users, the people who are actually going to do this thing. I um, I want to go back to something that you mentioned a few minutes ago, AJ, about expertise and finding the people who know how to ask the questions. Um, I'm struck by this because, uh, well, at Forrester, we we do an awful lot of surveying, right? And I think we can all admit that we all think we know how to ask questions on a survey, and then we quickly discover that we don't uh, for various reasons. I think it's maybe easier to see that on paper or in a in a quant study, right? Because then you can easily say, well, if you're asking multiple choice question this way and you use these sorts of words, this is the this is the potential bias you're introducing or this is what you've left out or whatever. What what kind of what kind of skills, what kind of education, what kind of background does a person need to know how to ask questions um, of users? live to get some of that qualitative data. Is there something that folks who are listening to this podcast can be looking for when they are trying to pinpoint that expertise? Absolutely. I mean, I just wrote a job description for service design for a client the other day, and it was interesting to think through what their particular scenario is and what they need. But at the end of the day, what you need is someone who understands human-centered design. If I were to introduce someone, I would be asking them, how did you uncover the needs of the users in this particular project? Show me. I want to see your portfolio because designers have portfolio. It's actually pretty awesome to be able to hire someone that has a body of work and they have to prove to you that they know what they're talking about. I mean, how often does that really happen in an interview? We should be excited to hire designers because they can improve it. 
Um, we do the same with engineers, right? They can prove that they can code, they can do these kinds of things. So looking for someone with that kind of background who can explain how they have uncovered a user need, they've created something that addresses that need, they've tested it. And, you know, not everything ships, for, especially for really young designers. <laughs> Their portfolio may not have, may not include shipped software or shipped services. But if they have the thinking there that they can prove <laughs> that they know how to do that process, that's what I would look for. Maybe for, you know, whether it's a CX professional or the UX researcher, I mean, can you talk a little bit about the partnerships that should be built between you know, those teams, if they're teams or individuals and the sort of power of those partnerships. Power dynamics is also a very interesting thing when we're talking about building products and bringing them to, to market. Erica Hall says that data, that, that doesn't prove, that doesn't change people's minds. It doesn't matter, right? Because there's a very human dynamic there. So if I were to start out a new research practice, I would think about how I might bring those folks into a place where they would be protected and supported, Right. And product usually has a whole lot of budget. <laughs> they usually have the power to make decisions and they have the power to influence strategy, which is what design is really, really good at. <laughs> design is excellent at helping you form front end strategy and then thinking about how that carries through all the way to shipping that project, that product rather. So I would hire them into that competency personally. And I would ask them to figure out how to partner with product effectively and how to be a partner in that area. That's not to say they can't be successful in other places. I mean, if they're in a strong CX organization that already exists and they are thinking about how we might collect data together using diverse types of methods, um, that again, that quant and qual, they could also be really successful there. But it's a company by company situation um, because we're all different, right? <laughs> so I know... Um something that gets shown on TV an awful lot because it's it's extremely dramatic and uh, people like to include it in movies. And then every once in a while, you run up against it in real life. It's this idea of the gut, right? Well, but I've always run my business based on my instincts. Um, I just know what a great product is. And I mean, of course, there are some incredible geniuses out there who have landed on something doing no research. What do you say to folks who say, I would love to get some data, but I'm, I'm just not sure that the, the C-suite's actually interested in that. I think that's just not the way my company operates. Do, well, I should ask, do you run up against that very often? And if so, what do you tell them? I think that it can be challenging to make the case for research and it takes a dedicated few, especially if you're in a company that just doesn't care. I mean, I've seen companies create huge design practices and just blow it to smithereens after hiring incredible talent. And again, it comes back to that human behavior. So as a person in a company that wants to stay there and wants to fight that fight, I would say start small. Prove the value of research through your own work. And then you start to find people who want to try it out as well because they've seen the results that you've been able to generate. When you, Because people always want examples. I think it's largely because people are afraid, honestly. Like, oh, if I try something new and it doesn't work, well, what if you never try something new? Your company's doing well because there's a genius that had a great idea. At some point in time, that idea, what you do, is going to become saturated in the market. There's going to be a lot of other players. And you have to think about how you differentiate, how you expand upon what you already do well, maybe. You need research to do that. I think John Maida talks a lot about <laughs> when design is really, really helpful is usually when we're 
in really saturated situations. And Forrester t- works with a lot of companies that have been there for a while. They're big. They have market share and they're going to lose it if they're not careful. So they need to think about bringing research in, thinking about what it means to do what we do today, not always doing it the way we've always done it. That's, oh my God, I don't ever want to hear that again. (laughs) But you're making a case for this is a way to avoid risk or the risk is so, it's so low level, right? That like, you know, the investment um, is limited. I mean, I hate to go back to this, you know, million dollar prototype phraseology, but think about like you roll the die on a big project without doing some of this upfront work. Like you could be going and going in a completely different direction or optimizing or iterating maybe on existing product versus trying to launch something completely net new. I mean, there's, there's just a lot of examples to point to where this just seems like a very smart thing to do. I, I agree. <laughs> and re- but resources for research aren't always limitless, right? So it's a great point about when we do research and uh, how much we invest in certain things. And there is a, a graphic I'm working on right now to represent something one of my old bosses used to talk about. And um, that graphic basically is saying, how risky is this thing, this idea, this endeavor, whatever the question is, how risky is it? And how certain are we about it? And it plays with that questions and assumptions exercise. So how much research you do is a conversation. We weigh that in diverse teams that are multidisciplinary, that have all the information. And we talk about what we know and what we don't know and where we might want to invest that money. It's a business at the end of the day. And a lot of people sometimes are like, oh, we love to do research for everything, but we can't. And because we can't, we just don't. Well, that's the lame excuse. (laughs) Make a choice. Design is about decisions. That's it. Like that is what design is about. So we all design, right? We all want to make um, decisions for the user. Herbert, uh, there's a gentleman that talks a lot about um, (laughs) this kind of decisioning, this making choices inside of a corporate context. That is the work. Um, So we need to be thinking about how we prioritize research and the choices we make. And you might be wrong sometimes, but I guarantee if you do something, you will learn something. And that learning informs what you do next. We have to keep learning. So I wondered if we could um, talk just a smidge about ongoing research. And the reason I'm, I'm fascinated with this idea of like getting ahead um, of, the, of the user, getting ahead of product planning is really because of what we've seen in the last couple of years. We'll be talking about this a lot at um, CX North America. In fact, we're like, things that, oh, we could never have done before, then the pandemic hits and suddenly these big lumbering companies were able to completely reinvent their their digital experiences overnight. Or at least that's what it seems like. Um, you dig in a little bit and you realize that in many cases, they already knew that these things were going to have to happen at some point because they had done ongoing user research. They just weren't ready to implement it. They The risk profile was too high, right? They they weren't sure that the that their audiences were ready for it. They weren't ready to invest the money, but they knew that they had already started thinking about it. How do you weigh, if I've got limited budget and limited people for research, do I prioritize stuff that I know I want to do or stuff that is currently in development? Or do I prioritize the kind of user research that gives me long-term data for planning? 
can I have both? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And here's how I would think about it. I would think about that thing that's about to go out into the wild. I would have that conversation. Like, what is some small test that we could do to test our understanding? Are we really certain, right? Um, Just because it's a good practice, something's going out the door. Well, maybe I could show a clickable prototype to somebody. There's a limited few people I could show this to do that's in our target audience. Like, it's always possible, right? And and then I would probably... (laughs) you know, allocate the resources that way. Um, but they need to be in both places. If we're talking about just one person, say you just hired one researcher, we're about to ship this thing. Well, then figure out how you can help someone test that first. I mean, that's your first job. Um, and then very quickly, once we have some answers to that, maybe we could talk about what are ongoing tests, long-term tests we might want to perform. And then let's talk about where that plays in strategy as well. I mean, I'm one person, I do a lot of stuff <laughs> in this company. You can utilize whatever you have effectively by having them think about, you know, what comes first. And that's going to be influenced by cross multiple, multiple disciplinary teams, engineering. Like, have you been running a lot of tests before I got here? (laughs) What do you know? Let's talk about it. What don't you know? How can I help? I'm assuming even though perhaps UX, you know, research is not done by all companies, there is growing interest in this skill set. So I'm assuming it's highly competitive or, you know, can you maybe describe the, the, the market if organizations are looking to hire, hire in talent and not necessarily outsource this to an agency or whatever? Or what are the options, I guess? Yes, hiring in talent, but also working with agencies or a combination of both. Like what should um, folks be considering right now? So, yes, it's super competitive right now. Um, we're at a point in time where designers can kind of have their pick you know, of the job that they want. So what should you be doing as a company in order to keep them if you catch them, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Designers want to work on interesting work, which is no different than engineers, quite frankly. We make things, that's what we do. So what will you help us make? What will you allow us to make? Don't just hire a designer in this hand wavy thing. like, oh, we have a design competency because you won't have it for long. They will leave (laughs) for more interesting work. So giving them access super important. You can work with Forrester to hire someone if you wanted. We have job role descriptions that you can leverage. But what else is also good is because everybody's hiring them, those descriptions are out there. So look to companies with developed design competencies. What are they hiring for? I mean, you can always mimic that if you really wanted to. Um, Again, I would say work with us so that you can learn (laughs) how this process works. But keep them once you catch them. So internally, what are you going to do to make sure that that person can do quality work? What are you going to do? You would probably do it for a lot of other people, right? So what are you going to do for the design researcher? And that is a good conversation to have internally. What would we have them work on first, knowing what we know? And are we going to let them do it? So you have to pave the way for them. Remember, we were talking earlier about making sure designers have a place where they can grow and and flourish. That's important. And I say designers and researchers interchangeably because the skill set is pretty married, right? I don't know how you could be trained to be a designer this day and age and not have human-centered design at the focus of how you produce what you produce. You can always hire an external design agency and pay them what probably eventually you would be paying in that first year salary for a UX researcher. Yeah. (laughs) You can do that and they'll come in and do that usually front-end exploratory thing. And sometimes companies need that deep expertise of a team that can help augment what they don't already have totally valid. But if you're that person internally that's hiring that agency, you should be shopping for someone who's going to be human-centered first. 
that is your job to make sure your customers are getting what they need. And that has a, a bunch of research is involved in those kinds of things, especially for the big projects when we hire in big headcount for design. Still, you should be able to ask the right questions. I'm wondering if you can tell us, AJ, what some of the hallmarks of a developed design practice are. If we're looking to the marketplace to try to emulate some best practices, uh, who should we look to and what will we see? I would say some best practices are designers that aren't just working as the solo designer or researcher, <laughs> like they actually have a team um, where the competency is supported um, through an HR function, through the people that they're working under. If it's not a standalone function, which it is in some companies, and that's amazing too. Um, very quickly, you'll see mature competencies start, start to kind of feedback out into the business. Um, because they're working in product teams, right? You've got a diverse, holistic team focused on either a journey or a product, you know, however they choose to define that. But that knowledge is centered in that team, right? When you hire in as a designer, if they're like, you can work over here and you can work over this and you can work in this cross-functional way and it's just you being begged by a million different, you know, people inside the organization to work on my research project, that that's taxing, and you don't have anybody working with you in partnership who is on the same quote unquote level, right? The same education, same background. Because when we're talking about designing things, even if it's designing experiments to learn, being able to work with someone else to design that experiment is really important. Um, so look for teams of designers already in place. Look for an organization that supports the competency and probably ask about it in their job description. Like, have you done this work before? Would you be interested in coming in and helping us learn more, right? Because a designer also comes in and in a lot of ways acts as someone who educates. So it is something I figured out very early in my career, right? Because we need other people to do our work. It is not something we do in a vacuum. We have to have people inform what we do. Designers are also great facilitators. So companies that have programs where they're educating other people in the company is really amazing and helpful, right? Because we can't let it be all of the designer's job to teach everybody how to do design, right? There has to be some sort of support in place for helping everybody learn. So I would look for that. I think sometimes we can look to products in the market that are working really well and get curious, like it has a great user experience. I would be curious about the design team behind that or the way that company sees the way that you support a customer. So because some companies like everybody works together and it's just not a big deal. Like, oh, yes, we're design, quote unquote, led or human centered design led because it's important from the beginning. And there's a lot to learn from that, too. So, AJ, when we're thinking about user testing or, or research, it feels like perhaps a lot of this work is actually done in person or could be or should be when we're, you know, journey mapping post-its on a board or things of that nature. Um but yet today, as everyone knows, is a, a um, much more digital in nature, perhaps remote working, anywhere work in play. So how are you seeing the, the practice evolve to, to meet today's demands? That's a great question. Um, because, yeah, we're, we're in the middle of it, right? And we're trying to figure out how to do these things. Traditionally, design is, or design research, is something that we do in person, right? That contextual interview, like going into someone's home or going into the place where they work, that is kind of the gold standard, or it has been up until now. 
when I think about how many user testing platforms there are that are available for people to access, even more so, I just think, why aren't you doing this? It's so easy now. Um, so user testing platforms, which there are many, when I think about how does this company perform in the country where I need to collect research, right? Because not every user testing platform can be in the country that you need to be. Um, I would think about how it helps me, maybe as a non-designer and the rest of my teammate or company, learn about design, like how to form those questions, right? How do I really understand how to ask the right question to get the thing that I need to understand? But you should know some of the features that are available through these platforms video. So you could say, hey, tell me about how you might um, wash your dishes, for example. That's a horrible example, but it could be as an example. Well, the user could turn their camera around and you could actually watch and see what they do, right? Which is, and you've got that on video. You've got that recorded. You've got their voice as well. So video and voice recordings that you can clip and size down and share in your, your share outs, playbacks for research. How powerful is that? I have a friend who works for a healthcare um, company and she's a designer and she was able to do that and share those clips. And they were trying to figure out, you know, is this thing that we're doing the thing that we should be doing? She formed the questions. She did the research. She captured that video and audio. And it was going to be a hard conversation internally. But when she was able to share the insights and then share that audio and video, people were crying, right? It was going to be a hard decision. They were going to have to change their minds about something they had really invested in, but they did because they were moved and they understood in a very personal way the issues that were at hand if they were to make a certain decision, right? So thinking about how it even, it makes your research practice even more powerful. <laughs> Think about it that way. It's not a total substitute for that in-person research, but oh, it can do a lot. So if you want to learn more about um, remote user testing, I'm going to be speaking about it at CXNA, which is in early June. So stop on by and have a conversation if you're there. Um, or we can set up some time to chat outside of that event. But it's such a powerful thing that we really need to start embracing as a part of our practice, which means across the whole design framework, implementing all the different points in which we may, might talk to users is a, I would say that is the gold standard <laughs> for research today. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I had a great time. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.